0: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers
1: expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. I'm sitting here with so many experiences happening. Um, the strongest one is the desire to um, turn you all on to the practice in the same way that I am. And some of you might already be, so it might be an easy sell. Um, but we've also gotten some notes and you know, questions in the interviews and the meetings about confusion, about you know, you said one thing and am I supposed to do this and what's going on here? And um, so I'm hoping in some way um, I don't confuse you more. (laughs) And um, there are I have heard from a few different scholars um, that have studied the Pali Canon and the whole of the teachings of the Buddha in his 40 years of teaching, that there are something like 84,000 skillful means for reaching liberation. So we're going to maybe talk about 20 here.
2: <laughs> right?
1: And So much of the work that we get to do is you'll hear our words, we will talk, we will be in front of the room, we'll have some experiences that we've had from our teachers that we've learned, that we've read, and then ultimately, as many of you have already seen, um, it's the actual practice that you're doing, putting the rubber to the road, that you're seeing these things pop, right? I know I've sat in these rooms for so many years and, you know, I just sat and listened. And that was fine. And I would practice and I would practice. And then maybe five years later, a teacher would say something and I'd say, oh, that's what that teacher meant, right, that forever ago. And suddenly there was some kind of click, 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 click that happened and I got it. It made sense.
2: And so I want
1: to give you permission, one, for it not to make sense, right, to not have to get it, um, to not have to completely understand the instructions. And maybe I'm willing to say that maybe we're not um, complete enough. That's part of it, right, is our our human fallibility. And it's also just learning something totally new, learning something new. Even those of you who have been practicing for, I know some of you have been practicing 30 plus years, we're always learning, we're always digesting, we're always taking in this new practice. So I guess that's what I first wanted to talk about. You know, um, I heard the analogy of an egg being hatched. Um, And I really love this. It felt very tactile and and sensual to me, you know, like holding an egg. And we can't can't will it to
2: hatch. It's going to hatch when it's ready.
1: We could crush it. We could break it. We can't actually make it hatch. So this is sort of what we're doing on these cushions where these little hibernation dens, you know. And allowing ourselves the time that it takes. And at the same time, (laughs) I'm gonna throw in a little curveball. At the same time, there are really beautiful and important guidelines that have been laid out um, and were laid out for us. Um, And I I wanna get into this, I wanna get into this story about how they were laid out for us and what was laid out for us. But I first want to tell you the topic that I'm going to talk about is um, called wise effort or right effort. So it's ways that we can direct our practice specifically so that, so that the results, so that we can see results. I'm going to say that and say that only until I, until I get back to it a little bit later. But first, I want to tell you um, a little bit about my story and how I came to the practice. Um, I came to it, um, you know, Buddhism via Hinduism, via the Red Road, via Catholicism, via a very painful teen and childhood years, right? So I think it would be fair to say, um, and I don't want to guess for any of you, but I think most of us and many of us come to this path. Um, because we're trying to figure something out. We've had some kind of suffering. We've had some kind of difficulty. We, you know, maybe we're struggling in some way. I've met, you know, a handful of people that came to this path um, for different reasons, but I would love to see, is there anybody that isn't struggling in some way in this room? I, I mean, I just want to know. <laughs> I want to be your friend. <laughs> Tell me and I'll hang out with you sometime. <laughs> That's that part. Oh, well,
2: it's not a big deal. Um, anyway.
1: So the reason I did the lots of pain, Catholicism, which I actually think parts of Catholicism are super cool. I think parts of the Red Road are super cool. I think parts of Hinduism are super cool. Um, um, But the reason I ended up at Buddhism is because um, I was thinking about it today, and I came to this today, was my parenting. I'm a great parent, but I wasn't parented so great. right? And I was thinking, Buddhism is kind of like a great parent because what it says is I have guidelines, I have, I have teachings I can give you. I'm gonna tell you how to do it, and then I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna put it in your hands, and you can take,
2: and you can take it from there. Right?
1: And it's kind of an interesting thing. We're not very used to that, typically. We're typically used to being just told what to do. And we're meant to have this sort of blind faith um, and agree. But what I really liked about this, because I also was a bit of a rebel, and that's why I had troubled teen years, (laughs) was if I blew it, I saw it.
2: It was very clear to me, right? There was a direct cause, condition, and result, right? It was, it was, it was the path.
1: It it all became very clear to me. So, when I started looking into it, because when I was a Catholic, I also thought Jesus was pretty cool. Right? Like, Like, Jesus was a rebel. Jesus got. I think, written out of history in a very poor way, right? But I think that the Buddha and Jesus had a lot in common. And so when I was checking out the Buddha, this human, not a not a, a God that never walked on this planet, the Buddha that made a lot of errors and lived a life of, you know, it said many of you know the story already, but I'll tell it again anyway, Um, was the son of a, we're not quite sure, but a large landowner, possibly a prince, you know, um, wealthy, castle, that kind of lifestyle. Um, Had everything, had everything that was needed and apparently was very good looking and, you know, all all of these things. A A lot of the things that we often find ourselves striving for in this life and found dissatisfaction, was not satisfied. So there was something about this person that um, they found dissatisfaction in their life and went out and sought out many other different practices. And um, at the time, Brahmanism was what the tradition was. So Brahmanism had a very um, clear caste system. It had a very clear intention of when you you were, lived a life of service until you retired, basically, or until your family, um, until you were done raising your family, and then um, you would go into renunciation. And so that was the, the life that the, the life time that the Buddha was living in. And so he instead decided to, as a young man, go into a life of asceticism. And so he went and studied with many different teachers over his life, um, pre-realization. Uh, uh, and each time, he apparently reached the heights of what any student could reach, but still found was not satisfied. And he got to the point where his asceticism became so nihilistic that he was apparently from the front of him, you could see his spine. And there are some statues that, that are, or effigies that you'll see around. You could see his spine from his front. There were patches of hair falling out. Um, teeth were falling out. And he was quite a young man. You know, wasn't, he wasn't an old man. And that was thought to be, like, the cool thing to do then, you know? And he, he, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something wrong here. Um, and and had this memory of himself as a young boy. It was maybe at some kind of festival or something. He was sitting under, they call it a rose apple tree. I want to know what a rose apple tree is. I've never seen one, but I'm sure it's beautiful and delicious. He was sitting under a rose apple tree and had such a deep sense of contentment that was not based on any of the worldly experiences that he'd had in his princely castle. Um, It was a a sense of contentment that was not based on any external circumstances. And so when he was literally almost dying, he had this remembrance and... Simultaneously, fortunately, as the story goes, this um, young, (laughs) beautiful woman, maiden, um, approaches him. And she happens to be holding a bowl of rice porridge. And he decides to actually eat at this point because he hadn't really been eating. That was part of his asceticism. And so he ate and, um, and obviously lived. Um, and decided to go sit. I'm skipping so much here just so you know. This is like the cliff notes like Brian was talking about. This is super annotated version. But there's other things to get to. Um, this is when he sat under the Bodhi tree. And and sat and sat and reached his awakening. Um, and his awakening, one of the biggest realizations was this, this middle path. This idea that. Completely getting all the riches and the wealth and the, be- the beauty and the fame and the power isn't where it's at. There was no satisfaction there. And yet also complete renunciation, giving it all up and, and not enjoying the pleasures of the body and sensuality isn't where it's at either. And so, so then this most important teaching, I would say, in the Buddhist tradition, the middle path um, came to be because of that. So this middle way of knowing, it's not all this and it's
2: not all that.
1: So this um, middle path, um, some of you may have heard of, is called the, the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the Four Noble Truths being um, the knowing that human suffering exists, right? That there is suffering. The, that's the first Noble Truth. The second Noble Truth being that the cause of that suffering is our desire for it to be different than it is. The third Noble Truth is there is a way out. There's a possibility to live without that suffering. And the fourth noble truth being um, the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the reason, again, why I came to Buddhism. Because it was so clear that I had no choice but to say, well, I can either do this or not. And if I do, let's see what happens. And if I don't, let's see what happens. Right. So this is part of what I want to talk to you about a lot of what I want to talk to you about. And I'm I'm giving a broad stroke because I just feel like it's important to know because I've had a lot of questions about what tradition are we following and what's the history that we're doing. And I just wanted to lay that out there a little bit so that people would know. So this eightfold path, and I'm not going to talk about the full eightfold path, but it's broken up into three sections. And those three sections are called Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila being our ethical practice, how we show up in the world, our ethical practice, the precepts that we took, our ethical practice, our sila being the relational way that we show up in the world, right? How we treat other people, how we treat the planet, how we treat each other in community, at work, all of those things. This is the sila aspect of Eightfold Path. And then the samadhi aspect of the Eightfold Path is what we're doing here. Us sitting on these cushions. This is, our, in, in my mind, our self-care part of the path. This is where we pay attention to our inner lives. This is where we reflect. And this is where wise effort comes in. Um, in sila, it's, it's in, the, in the ethical piece, it's speech action and livelihood. In samadhi, it's mindfulness, effort, and concentration. So this is kind of what we're caring for here, right? This personal aspect. And then panya, the wisdom aspect, is um, view and intention or, th- or thought, as it's often said. And I'm not going to get too much into the other two. But what I do want to say about the path is that these three, three aspects cannot complete, be complete without each other if we're looking towards this forward movement, towards this liberation, towards this awakening that is being offered. And when I, when I, think, about, um, when I think about the Buddha, and one of the things I love about teaching here is that this is sitting right behind me because I really feel the support of it. When I think about the Buddha, um, I know that this was not a self-help guru, right? Like this this was about the real deal. And this was about somebody who said, I believe that all beings
2: can wake up. So when
1: I, when I feel that behind me and when I feel that in front of me, um i want to share it with that enthusiasm because there cuz that's that's what i i really believe right? that's what i really believe is that we all have that potential regardless of what we come in with because part of what was said was even with that brahmanic caste system that the buddha was born into where race and hierarchy and money and economy were all and gender were all very um, Marginalized is that the Buddha moving forward and from here out from my from what I feel out is this possibility the possibility that um that we can all we actually all can do this so I just want to I want to share that enthusiasm with you so these this sila samadhi panya this this eightfold path,
2: um, you know, really pointing to the ways that um,
1: the ways that all of our lives are interconnected. So you may have seen at some points in sitting on the cushion, and I know you.
2: Good. No,
1: it's back. Um, you know, that when we come in with our past stories, you know, we just reflect for a moment on um, so looking at Sila Samadhi Panya. So looking at Sila, our ethical practice, our relational practice, how we show up in the world, how we treat other people, right? Does, do we have that? Like that's what sila is. And then let's just hold samadhi and sila together for for a minute. If we have been either mistreated by others or have been mistreating others, causing harm, walking with harm, it's a lot harder to find our samadhi. It's a lot harder to settle into our practice. Our minds are often remembering or thinking about or trying to forgive or trying to forget or trying to work through or trying to heal, right? We have our traumas. We have all of these things that are going on because of a lot, a lot because of our relational aspects in our life. Is that fair to say? You know, some are because... We just think poorly of ourselves, right? Some are because we just have this prol- proliferation of, um, of ill will t- towards ourselves. But a lot is because of how we've been treated or how we've treated others. There's a lot going on there. And then the other aspect, if I hold samadhi in my hand again, and then I look at panya, so we're looking at wisdom. If I don't really understand the nature of reality, it's hard to sit with myself. So some of the nature of reality is that we, that we age, right? <laughs> so like a really simple thing, if I was to sit here going, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm 53 and why did this happen to me and what did I do wrong and, right, like it's all my fault and I wish I had done something different. It's like, no, Joanna. You know, that's wisdom. Wisdom says we age.
2: Wisdom says that we, that we die. Those that we love
1: and we die. So if I sit here in my samadhi trying to fight my panya, <laughs> there's, a, there's a struggle, right? There's a struggle. So these three, I'm making so much sense to myself. I hope I'm making sense to you. Like I really do because I'm kind of liking what I'm saying and I'm just making it up. I mean, I'm not making it up, but I'm feeling it. (laughs) So I'm hoping it's helpful.
2: Oh, so you know what I'm going to do? Perfect. Ah, look at that.
1: Okay. MacGyver.
2: <laughs>
1: Wisdom. <With> <laughs> <laughs> so, important to know that this work we're doing, yes, it's for, it's for ourselves here. And that's what we're going to do right now. And to know. That it has branches, right? It's kind of like a dandelion. I like to think of it. You know, when you blow on that, it just it's, it spreads out to others and and into
2: into our minds. So I, I am gonna get to effort. <laughs> so.
1: And I'll and I'll get to it quick because I think it's important. I'll stop with my other stuff. So effort comes in and is part of the samadhi. Right. So our mindfulness, our concentration, and our effort, they live together. And as you've seen, your mindfulness and your concentration take effort. <laughs> Would that be fair to say? And it's not always effortful. It's not always. And hopefully it's not always like you have to go, I'm efforting, I'm efforting, I'm efforting, I'm efforting. But there are moments when the mind just realizes, oh, that's interesting, I turned back. I turned back, right? There are ways that we know, when we're standing in the grocery store line, right? If you got pissed off every single time there was a line, that would be a problem. You'd be a very unhappy person. So that, just so you know, is a moment of effort. It's a moment of the mind just naturally efforting towards presence, towards reality, towards panya, towards wisdom, right? So we're doing that all the time. It's not a rare thing. But when we're sitting on the cushion and we don't have distractions, and when we think we're supposed to be doing it a certain way, it can get really tricky. And so what we're looking at with effort is this way of creating balance in our practice on our cushion in particular, and with our mind in particular, so that it's not a stressed out, striving tight mind, but it's also not a flabby, lazy, not paying attention spaced out mind, right? And you've probably had both while on this retreat. And typically the first few days are this one. Because we have a purpose, we have an intention. I heard some great stories in this room about bosses that want answers and roommates that want answers, and you know. So you came in with a purpose, and so there's a lot of striving. I only have seven days, and I'm gonna get it done, right? So it's like, Arr. so there's that striving. And then I've also heard that, oh, man, I just don't quite. I'm not feeling it yet, you know. It's nice to be here. I like being fed. (laughs) It's kind of cool, but nothing's really happening. So there's also that. And so what we're looking for is this really sweet
2: space. You know, this sweet space in between. This balance.
1: So there are ways that we can... Pay attention to our effort so that we can create that balance. And so one of the ways is prevention. So to prevent the unwholesome, you know, as we as you've heard probably heard us, is this going in and out for you, Brian? No, okay. <laughs> um, the unwholesome or the unskillful, as we've called it. We've thrown lots of words around. I know that. Um so to prevent the unwholesome from arising. The second would be to abandon once once this like crazy thing has arisen, what do we do to the word in the suttas is abandon, um, but to get rid of to help us, you know, to put it down. The next is to cultivate. How do we cultivate wholesome states? How do we cultivate wholesome effort effort? And then once we have it. How do we maintain it? How do we keep it? So I want to I talk about a few of those for a moment. Um, the prevention, I think, is, for a lot of people, the prevention could be the most crucial and the most vital. Because the prevention, in a way, and so what, so what I'm talking about, I want to go back to what I'm talking about in terms of effort and prevention. I'm talking about how we prevent the mind from going into whatever spins or caught states that it goes into, right? And this is not my teaching. This is actually the Buddhist teaching. (laughs) I just need people to know that because I'm considered a bossy person. So I want you all to know that (laughs) one of the reasons I like this teaching so much is because it's a little bit bossy. But it's also really helpful is if you know something Is harmful to you if you know a person is harmful to you, if you know a certain text or looking at social media or walking down the ice cream aisle or, you know, whatever is harmful to you. What prevention is talking about is well, just don't do it. Right? It sounds really simple. It sounds really simple. Like today I was trying to write my talk and I'm like, don't call on Facebook, don't call on Facebook, don't call on Facebook. And it was crazy because I knew what would happen if I did. You you all know that we have Wi-Fi, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> i <I'm> just like, <laughs> we just do, we, we do do that sometimes when, when we're teaching, not when we're sitting. Right. But it was really, you know, I was just watching my mind knowing that if I did, you know, or if I'm at home and I'm feeling super like I deserve Netflix binge, you know, like I'm just going to binge on Netflix for seven hours and I know I have something else to do, you know, how do we
2: pay attention enough, be mindful enough to know
1: when we're falling into a trap? When we know if we hang out with that friend, that particular friend who's angry or uses or talks mean about people, or right when we know that when we hang out with them we get agitated and it's not good for us, the wise thing to do would be to not do it. (laughs) Right, so it seems like a pretty clear instruction. One of my favorite. This is such an old school story. It's like it's vintage by now because it's been told so many times, but I think it's such a good story. And so if you've heard it, just listen again. And it's such a great prevention story. It's called There's a Hole in My Sidewalk um, by a woman named Portia Nelson. Chapter one I walk down the street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I've fallen again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street.
2: There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Prevention. Chapter five. I walk
1: down another street prevention. <laughs> right? So that's a good story. That's a good prevention story and we can we I could actually probably do the whole effort throughout that story.
2: Um but
1: why we sit retreats like this, why we do practices like this is to strengthen our mindfulness, to strengthen our awareness so that we are turned on
2: when we notice that we're about to fall into the hole, right? When we're about to text that message
1: or send that email or walk down that ice cream aisle, right? So what mindfulness says is, oh, this is interesting. Craving is strong. I would like to do this, but I know the outcome. I know what's going to happen. So that's prevention. The next one, abandonment. Um, I don't want to say abandonment. That's not right. Abandon or let go of. So this is once, once you've fallen in the hole in the sidewalk. You've fallen in. You're in the hole. You know you're in the hole.
2: Um,
1: as you've seen, this one is really super sticky, right? Because this is actually where we tend to wake up is once we've fallen in, in the hole. It's pretty rare until we've done a lot of, until we've really accumulated some miles. <laughs> it's rare that we find ourselves before we fall in the hole. So there's a few ways to deal with that. And I think I'm going to talk about that tomorrow in the instructions. There's a, a few different ways to work with something once we've fallen in, in that hole. Um, But I'm just going to name them really quickly and then I'll talk more about them tomorrow. One is to, um, once you've realized it, because we can't know it, we can't even know we've fallen in until we've realized it, is to ignore it, right? So if you find yourself in this really sticky thought process or place, some kind of obsession that we, what we call is ignore that it's even there. Um, Another one, which is the one that I really love, is to clench our teeth and push it away. So so if somebody is really in a hardcore place with maybe some kind of self-harm or addiction or going to harm somebody else, right, or in a place that we know the mind can't stay, we really have to sort of bear down and turn away from the situation. So this is what the, I mean, again, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha was talking about these things, right? We have to ignore it. When all else fails, we bear down and grind our teeth. Those are the words that are in the sutta. Bear down and grind our teeth. So when we're, we're in that super sticky place, it's, it's, it's hard. One of my favorite stories um, is the story of, it. it's a, I, I wish I had the, um, the reference to it, but I read it many years ago, and it's just stuck with me ever since. It's about this orangutan, and I hate, I, I hate parts of the story, but I think it's an interesting story, is there's this orangutan that was um, part of a research project, and this orangutan who was born into captivity um, was sent around from many different research labs. Um, And kept getting moved because every lab it went to, um, they were having problems with him staying in his cage. And so what they would find is in each research lab, they would come back the next morning and the office would be turned upside down. Papers everywhere, desks upside down, chairs, you know, strewn around. But the orangutan was in the cage, so they didn't understand what was happening. So they set up these video cameras, and they saw that every night he would get out, and while out, right, he would throw this party, and he had a paperclip in his cheek. And so what he would do is he would go back in the cage, and he would lock himself back in. (laughs) So some of you might be catching on already. Like, how often do we do that in our own minds?
2: We have the paperclip.
1: You know what's such a trip? I just, we just had a retreat here last month. And a girl walked up to me because I told the paperclip story um, last year at a young adult retreat. She had a paperclip tattooed on her wrist.
2: Because it was just a reminder for her. That,
1: you know, we, we, mindfulness and effort is our paperclip. And how often are we so beholden to our suffering and our story that we keep locking ourselves back in? And so, this teaching, the Buddha's teaching on abandoning, which can feel, can sound really harsh, but is also an extension of generosity. <laughs> right, to the possibility of freedom. And sometimes we're just not used to working that hard. We want it faster. You know, we just want it faster. So I I love that orangutan story because, you know, for whatever reason, captivity was where he was at. So then the next one is, um, so we've talked about prevention. We've talked about abandonment, abandoning. I don't know why I keep saying abandonment, abandoning. The next one is to cultivate. So, an effort that we can make is to cultivate the wholesome. And cultivating the wholesome is through, you know, one of the ways is through practicing the the Brahma Vihara. So, for instance, that chant that we practice every night, or a Metta practice, or a forgiveness practice, a practice that is uplifting to the heart, a practice that takes us out of the trenches of what's difficult, a practice that cultivates what's wholesome.
2: It can be as simple as,
1: as walking outside and seeing what's beautiful, Being, seeing what's remarkable in a day versus seeing what's difficult in a day. Because it's really easy to get burdened and bound down by what's hard. We often miss what's beautiful. So cultivating, paying attention to, and this also takes effort, right? It might not be our natural inclination, but what if you promised yourself tomorrow that 50% of your day you were going to spend on what's beautiful? 50% of your day you were going to notice what didn't hurt or what wasn't hard or what the mind wasn't grasping onto. 50% of your day, You cultivated, you really worked on inclining the mind towards towards ease, towards peace, towards liberation, towards freedom. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're all here, right? I'm pretty sure that's why we're all here. So the cultivation, the cultivation, efforting towards that. And then once we get there, what's it like to maintain? What's it like to, you know, I've I've so many times I've been in meetings and uh, and again a few today where people are kind of like, well, you know, everything's kind of good. My last retreats were so hard. You know, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) And, you know, once we Find that peace and ease. It might not be as exciting or interesting or titillating, or it might not grab you in the same way, but this is good. Like, know that this is good. This is okay to feel. It's okay to feel well. It's okay to feel easeful. It's okay to have moments of peace. And so, when those are there, Watch the mind's tendency to then slip into, uh-oh, something's wrong. And see what it's like to live with, you know, oh, maintaining, maintaining this ease. How can I, how can I move? How can I take my next steps to
2: maintain this ease? So I
1: I, I um, again, came to this practice because I needed some really pragmatic and I needed some really good information and steps and proof, right, that this was going to do something
2: for me, that I wasn't going to have to feel so bad anymore. <laughs>
1: That was prevention. (laughs) You know, and I'm here to tell you, I'm here to testify to that fact that doing the work and really paying attention every time,
2: all the time, um, has paid off. And it's not like tomorrow
1: you know um and that's what that's what cultivation means that's what you know cultivation if any of you work in in you know any kind of horticulture have ever grown anything or spent any time watching what we what we water what we fertilize what we pay attention to um, that's what grows what we pay attention
2: to is what grows
1: So if we're paying a lot of attention to harmful, hurtful, difficult things in our heart and our mind, just the law, the the natural law is that that's what it will, will continue. And if we pay attention to that, which serves our heart and minds, and then therefore, because of the, these principles of the eightfold path can then. We'll move out into all those that we touch.
2: That's what we'll grow, right?
1: So we can't plant a tomato seed and grow corn. It's not going to happen. So really, we're paying attention to what we plant, where we're placing our effort, where we're placing our energy, where we're placing our attention. Um, because we'll, we'll see, we'll see that we'll see the energy roll out in that way.
2: So I hope that was helpful in some way. Useful. I don't have a poem.
1: so we'll just sit for a couple seconds